This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. So I got tired of seeing the same, you know, white American blue eyed blonde hair girl in front of us teaching us about instruction and what we're supposed to do in the school and school policy and stuff. And I'm like, well, I can do that. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Search Associates. My name is Nate, and I'm your host and American Teacher Abroad. Today, I want to have a conversation uh, for you all with uh, a guest who's very near and dear to my heart. And I want to ground this conversation in three ideas. Uh, these have been kind of going through my head recently, and I just want to, I want to kind of put them in your head as well. Uh, one, if you think about the history of the United States, from Stacey Abrams today, to Rosa Parks, to Ida B. Wells, Black women are the beating heart of American democracy and are the North Star and conscious, which points the direction where our country is to go. And we see the same thing replicated in education. Folks like uh, Melinda Anderson, who was a writer, and Val Brown and Shana White are some of the loudest and most vociferous advocates for equity in education. At the same time that I want to elevate these voices, one of the things that we do is that like, we fetishize Black women as intellectuals and like, we, uh, we exoticize them as thinkers. And like, there's this thing that you see where like people get called the Oracle and all that. And like, what, what we really need to do is like, we don't need to worship black women. We need to just listen to them and we need to elevate their voices when we can. And so that's what I want to do today. So with that context, I want to have a conversation with somebody who I met in my travels here in the Gulf. And uh, Tiffany, can I call you a doctor yet? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. Good. So we are going to have a conversation today with educator, uh, podcaster, and my friend, Dr. Tiffany Lachelle-Smith. Tiffany, how are you? I am well. Thank you. Thank you. And it's funny because the reason I say let's do it, I officially graduated a virtual commencement, of course, this month. <laughs> so hey. it hasn't set in yet. So the defense won't happen until August. And I figure nothing's going to change between now and August except for a written document. So let's do it. Dr. Smith. <laughs> they cannot take it away from you. I love it. I love it. I love it. So I'm not going to tell you age because like that's not what we do on the show. Uh, but you are somebody who is younger than me, but who, is, who I view as an OG in this teaching abroad game. And so I want to center this conversation and well, let's do this. Why don't you tell me and Doug and folks listening uh, the topic of your dissertation and then we'll go from there. <laughs> So I've titled my dissertation, Discovering Roots, and I spell roots, R-O-U-T-E-S, and it's an examination of teacher attrition through the life histories of African-American teachers who left the U.S. K-12 system for teaching opportunities in the UAE. So, so you wrote a doctoral paper about Black teachers who left the United States and moved to UAE. And I'm writing, I'm writing, You're writing. in the okay. process, right? <laughs> But yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. We'll come back to that for sure. Cause like there's lots to explore there. Um, 
I met you. We had a meeting in Cafe Arabi, like pre-COVID, lovely coffee shop that you, sh you showed me. Um, and then I was a guest on your podcast, which, by the way, I'm going to plug heavily for you. Uh, Tiffany hosts a show called Abroad in Education. Great pun there, abroad and abroad. Um, and it is stories from black edpats who are teachers like myself living outside the United States. Uh, and they're just really great conversations with folks who are kind of walking my walk. But Tiffany, I want to hear your story a little bit. Um, tell me about your entry into education. Like, where did you teach and for how long? Amen. You know, it's interesting because I every time I go through this, I don't start necessarily with my experience in teaching. I actually mm -hmm. start with my experience with study abroad. And yeah. when I was a junior in university, I had the opportunity to study abroad to South Africa. And I feel like because I studied abroad to a country where the default is black, I went through this like identity reformation crisis, just like, wait, there's a world outside of America where everybody's black. <laughs> so it was I'm, I'm in this teacher preparation program. I'm going for my degree in early childhood studies. And when I went abroad, Nate, I came back and I was like, forget that teaching stuff. I'm trying to get back out into the world, you know. So I decided to start the application for the Peace Corps. And because the Peace Corps application wants your medical, dental, life history, everything, <laughs> I yeah. ended up getting a job before I finished the application. So my first year teaching was here in Edwardsville, about 20 minutes outside of my hometown of Alton, Illinois. And the first year was fine, you know, novice year trying to understand the difference between this theory that I learned in the program and the practice in the classroom and just, you know, first year novice stuff. But the second year is when I was transferred to pretty much an all white school. So I was the only black teacher at an all white school. And I started to, I don't know, just feel that sense of not belonging. I don't belong mm -hmm. here. And it wasn't just not belonging in the school, but like not belonging in America. I just felt so different. And while I was going for my master's program, I met a young woman from Brazil, Patty, who um, <clears throat> introduced me to the teaching abroad and started researching it. Her mother was a principal in Kuwait. She put me in touch with a couple teachers out there and went to the University of Northern Iowa. What is it? University of Northern Iowa. Yeah. Their international recruiting fair. And the rest is history. <laughs> How long did you teach in the States before you went abroad? Hmm. Excuse me, two years. So I've, I've always had these two year stints, two years in the States, two years in Morocco, two years in the UAE. But I did stay for a third year in the UAE. And that's when everything went downhill. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, what was it like for you being a single woman showing up in Morocco? Ooh, that's a good question. I only ask good questions. It's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question because I really haven't thought about it in that way. So one of the ways that I, um, or at least I'll just say my, my lens of looking at the world is through this intersectionality and not necessarily mm -hmm. just looking at myself as a woman. Much of my examining of my, my time in Morocco has been as a black woman and then as an American, right? So it hasn't just been isolated as a single woman. Um, I think because it was my first time out of the country, I was very... I don't know. It, it was I wasn't as adventurous as I was by the time I got to the UAE. So I never dated. You know, I never 
um, went into, you know, the home of a man who was married or unmarried because of the laws, right? It's, it's what people say, you know, if you get caught doing this, you can go to jail. If you get caught doing that, you can go to jail. And for me, it was, you know, you just go here and teach and then you can go home over the summer and do what you need to do and then come back. So I really wasn't assimilating, I guess, at that point. It was kind of not necessarily survival, but just being on my best behavior. And then as I get as I got comfortable in the space, um, unfortunately, we did have some encounters, especially being um I would say single black women walking on the streets and stuff. We were attempted to get mugged twice, attempted muggery. So that's the purse snatchings and, you know, somebody coming up to us with a knife, you know, asking for our phones and, you know, this, this and this. So, you know, I don't know if it would have been a difference married, though. You know, I don't know. I can't attribute that to being a single woman. Um, But, yeah, those are the experiences that come up. It was just like a tourist. It still very much felt like I was a tourist there. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that you don't think about it a lot as being like a single black woman and you thought more about being a black American abroad. And this is something that like I kick around in my head all the time. And I've talked with folks. I talked to uh, Christina McDade on this show about it. Uh, I talked to my man, Brian Cadogan, who was a guest on your show about it a lot. Yeah. I still have not come to a point of arrival about expressing how I feel about it. But I want to lay out a take to you and you tell me like to what extent you agree with this take. When I'm outside of the United States is really the only time that I get the full benefit of like Americanness. And I actually feel more at ease and at home outside of the United States than I feel like I felt back in the United States. And I don't think I would have said that. Well, let me leave, let me start to start there. Does that take resonate with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Why? You know, it's it's <laughs> so one of the reasons why I appreciated South Africa is it, because it was the first space that I was able to realize that I was American. And mm-hmm. it was being in a group of I mean, of course, there were if there were 12 students, maybe four of us were black and then the rest were white. But even the black folks were biracial. So I was really the only like black black. <laughs> That's horrible. I don't even want to finish that sentence. I'm not going to finish that sentence. I was probably the darkest one in the group. We'll go there. Yeah. I love that you say I was only black, black person in the, in the African <laughs> like, city. No, I'm, and I'm just like, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm not going there. But it was it was interesting because be, because I looked so much like South Africans, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I started talking that they that they knew I wasn't South African. So I had my micro braids, you know, and it wasn't necessarily that I was always with the group, just this common physique, same color, everything. And when people, South Africans would come and speak to me in Zulu, it was the first time in my life that I ever had to say, I'm American. I speak English, you know, like I've, I'm never, there's nowhere in America that would, that would be my response. So it was the first time that I caught myself saying that and having to explain my difference in our commonality, right? I looked at everything was the same. It was just like, this girl is not us. So when I'm looking at my experience and comparing it to, you know, the experiences that my colleagues are having, primarily white um, women at that, very privileged, privileged experience. It was the first time that I was ashamed to be American. 
like the way that they were acting, the way that they were treating people. The And I was with the group. I felt shame to be American. But then at the same time, I'm just now tapping into this identity. So that it's only abroad that you get to even have those contradictions right? <laughs> and, and, and have the privilege to unpack it and talk about what it is. Yeah. I don't want to get too far ahead of the conversation, but one of the thoughts that like has really landed in my head from reading the book cast and also in our prior conversations is, is that for too many black Americans living in the United States is like living in an authoritarian state. Yeah. And so what I'm seeing happen is an exodus of black teachers to countries that may be less democratic but where their rights and privileges are maintained because they're American. And so essentially they're finding better treatment in authoritarian, authoritarian states than they are in the democracy where they're from. I, I wonder, so, so that's, that's kind of where my head is. Is that a take you've heard from people you've interviewed before? You know, I, it's, it's interesting, I'll say that, because on the surface, I think it, that's exactly what it is on the surface. And um, just kind of thinking about the stories that my life historians talk about in the study. Um, Ooh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Life historians. So first off, props for that. Props for that. But, but I, I love that, that terminology. Unpack what that means. These are not my stories, right? And this, this mm -hmm. entire dissertation, and a friend of mine said it beautifully, um, these stories have been given to me. And it, I have to do my due diligence to present them to the world in a way that, I don't know, like um, it's our own knowledge. It's our own stories. It's our own histories. It's our own interpretations of our decisions and why we do what we do. And with me being a Black scholar, examining Black stories, it's like, you know, these are the life historians. They belong to them. You know, these are their stories. It's a beautiful thing, uh, especially in research when people call them um, participants or, <laughs> you know, folks that just participate in the study. I'm like, no, this is your study. It belongs to you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, yeah. you're, you're the griot, right? So like in, in some East African cultures, the griot is the storyteller. And so you're telling the story of a lot of us out here to the rest of the world. And I respect Amen. it a lot. appreciate it. Amen. Um, so you were in Morocco for two years and then you brought yourself to the Gulf. So what brought you to what brought you to UAE? Being selected. Okay. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. So I, in my in my story, I've gone through two rounds of applying for PhD programs. And mm -hmm. when I left Morocco, well, at the end of my two year contract in Morocco, I was ready to do something different. Um, a lot of stuff was just surfacing in the school, very political, criminal activity, all that stuff. It was like, you know what, this is a lot. And then even just walking on the streets at that point, you know, I'm surveillancing, watching my back front side side because, you know, I had been attempted to be robbed and stuff. So I was just ready to go. It was just it felt unsafe. So um, when I decided I was ready to leave, I decided to apply to a couple of Ph.D. programs. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, we'll just go back home and we'll get into the Ph.D. program. Well, I didn't get accepted into any. <laughs> So what happened, I ended up having to um, apply for a job at the end of recruitment season. And mm -hmm. as you know, when you're when you're applying for these international jobs, there's a particular peak season between like what, January and May, when a yeah. lot of folks yeah. are hiring for that year to come. So it probably wasn't until I mean, I would say April, May, when I started reaching out to actual schools as far as what their vacancies was. 
So when I got hired to come to the UAE, it, at the same time, I probably had three other offers, one from Malaysia. I know that's your play. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. poor, yes. Yeah, one from Dubai. Um, I think there was an American school that had just started in Dubai and then one, the um, ASA, uh, American International School in Abu Dhabi. ASA, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was just, you know, uh, I wasn't ready to come home just to come home and teach. If I did come home, it was to, you know, progress in doing something. But since I didn't get accepted into any PhD programs, I just went to another country. So Gareth and Mary Pittman Jones hired me. (laughs) And so then you taught in Abu Dhabi for two years? I was in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, this is the walk of shame. I was in Abu Dhabi for almost three years and I actually quit in the middle of the school year, Nate. Yeah. So as I said, I had these two year stints, two years in the States, two years in Morocco. I completed two years in Abu Dhabi. And that third year, I still remember the school year starting. It just was not clicking. It wasn't clicking. Mm -hmm. It wasn't connecting. I was getting ready to turn 30. And I was like, you are out here in the world playing. You need to get home, get serious about life. Another yacht party for real? Like (laughs) another country to go to? I think at that point it was like 35. Like at this, it was just the playground. You're out in the playground. You know, it's time to get serious, Tiffany. It's time for you to get married. It's time for you to have kids. Like those societal narratives, right, of what black women, Mm. well, I guess Americans are told what success is. So I literally quit in the middle of the school year, Nate, and I, again, went through that process of applying for PhD programs. This time I applied to six, and out of the six, I got accepted into two. But still, when I came back to the States, it was, Lord, I'm going to walk out on this limb, and please don't let me fall. (laughs) And everything just kind of connected. Yeah. Well, what I appreciate about hearing you say that is, is that... Because so much of the experience of teaching abroad is communicated via social media, we oftentimes only get like the good aspects of it. And so I I guess this is one of the points where like, I am really lucky that, lucky is the wrong word. I am really happy that I ended up at the school that I ended up at. And the matchmaking is something that I didn't have my head around. Like when we were like searching for jobs at first, like there are tiers of schools out here and there are some tiers, there's some schools that are like amazing institutes of education where you're well taken care of and so and so and so and you have academic freedom and like you're allowed to do your thing and your work isn't dictated to you and there are some places that are like factories and like unless you have somebody to help you kind of navigate the way, like you end up one of those factories and like I've talked to folks who've gone abroad for two years and like peaced out because they were in a bad school and like I, I've, I've been like, well, what's the name of the school you're at? And they like, tell me the name. I look it up. I'm like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And so like, that's, that's interesting that, that you, so you went back and did, and did your PhD. So let me ask you this really fast. Okay. okay. And I, I do, I have to correct that because my, and, and if there is an assumption, um, Asa, the school that I was at was an amazing school. Okay. And I actually quit the year that, the best year of my entire teaching career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was just, it was me, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. why my study is so significant to me. It's because we're always talking about student-centered, you know, institutional. We're, not, we're never talking about the teacher. And it was me that was the issue. I had life things that I wanted to experience, and it just wasn't connecting in that place. I love that matchmaking, though, because there's something significant about that, too. Yeah. Yeah, like like there's an alternate timeline where Hope and I took a job at a 
uh, school. Well, first off, let me just, okay, spill some tea really fast. We were on the verge of taking an offer from a school in Shanghai uh, that like we were told was in the Shanghai, Shanghai suburbs. And then we looked it up on Google Earth way later on. And by suburbs, they meant two hours outside of Shanghai. Oh, okay. okay. And so we would have had our behinds in China during COVID if we would have went there. And so like bullet dodge there, like the, the matchmaking and making sure at the right school is really, really important. And like, that's, that's real. I would say anybody listening to our conversation right now, if you're thinking about going abroad, like talk to somebody who has been abroad and has some experience in the scene, preferably somebody like has more experience than me. I'm only in year two right now uh, because like not all schools are created equal and you want to make sure you find the right fit. Amen. All right. So you were going to bring up your research. I want to talk about that in a moment. But first, let's take a break. Hey, farm fam. It's no secret I've been podcasting from Abu Dhabi these past two years. But what I haven't talked much about is how I found this school ended up teaching abroad. During the hellscape of the last four years, Hope and I decided that we needed a change. And we turned to Search Associates to make it happen. Search Associates worked with 800 schools in 125 countries. So we had many choices of where to go. They assigned an associate to work with us directly to learn more about our backgrounds, our interests, and find a position that would be the perfect fit. Hope and I both wanted to teach at the same school, which you'd think would make search harder, but working with search associates, you'd never know it. Their personal touch approach made it a breeze. Another great thing is that the associate who's assigned to help you is a former school leader, most often a former head of an international school, so they really get the international school scene. I can't recommend them enough. Now, here's the thing. The political situation might have changed at home, but the benefits of teaching abroad are still clear. A great job combined with a rich cultural experience that comes from experiencing another culture. Listen, don't take my word for it. More than 40,000 highly qualified teachers, administrators, counselors, librarians, and interns, and other educators have used Search Associates to find positions in top K-12 international schools. So don't wait another day to pursue your dream of teaching abroad. With Search Associates, you'll take that journey step-by-step, from filling out the applications to selling your new school with confidence. Visit searchassociates.com to start your journey. Thank you to Search Associates for helping us live our dreams and teach abroad. And thank you for your support of this podcast. Thank you for downloading the show today. You have the opportunity to choose what you listen to on Monday mornings. Uh, a lot of great podcasts come out Monday mornings. I noticed that too. Uh, thank you for supporting the Nerve Farmer podcast. This is a production of Channel 253, which is a network of podcasts telling stories with a Northwest heart and stories based out of Tacoma, Washington. And if you are in Tacoma listening to this, or if you're in Kuala Lumpur listening to this, or if you're in Jakarta, shout out to Jakarta, by the way. If you're in Manila listening to this, wherever you are, thank you for listening. If you want to support this show and shows like it, uh, consider joining Channel 253 as a member. Membership is $4 a month or $40 a year. And that membership gets you the opportunity to join our member-only Slack. This is for the locals now. Uh, on the Slack, we're talking about events around politics in Tacoma. Uh, this week is filing day or filing week. And so we're seeing all the folks who are filing for local offices. And also there's a conversation going on right now on the local Slack uh, about the uh, effort to get the Blue Lives Matter stickers removed from the Pierce County Sheriff's Department vehicles that are being contracted to uh, Pierce Transit. These are conversations about events that impact our community and that are very real. And if you believe in community like I believe in community, then you should believe and support this network in the show. All right. Uh, Tiffany, let's get back to it. Amen. Tiffany, your research is what brought me and you into like each other's orbit. Yeah. Um, you said that you decided to do, you, you applied to, to, to a doctoral program after a second year of teaching. Did you know what you wanted to research when you applied after year two? Or was it after year five that you really realized you wanted to focus on this topic? Oh, Nate, that's a good question. You know, 
it's interesting because I, I, I say that I have no control over all of this. For me, and this is some of the work that I'm doing, uh, not necessarily in my dissertation, but in some other publications that I'm working on, just this unpacking of the life history, right? How do, what is this root of how I got to where I am? And I realized that as a student, right, I've always been, I've always known how to do school. So when it came to performing and, you know, making good grades and, you know, being that student who didn't require any extra attention, that's just who I was. So I've always enjoyed school. And if I'm not teaching, I'm a student. You know, if I'm a student, I'm not teaching. And it has been this jumping back and forth. So when it came to applying for the PhD programs after my second year, it was just like, well, if I could pick anything to do right now, I would go back to school. I think, too, one of the things that I realize about being a Black American and specifically a Black American woman is that we do have these these narratives that we've been taught about, you know, go to school so you can get a good job. You know, if you have more education, you'll make more money. And that's how education works in general. You know, when you look at the salary scale, it's how many years of experience, how much education, and then bump, there's your 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 salary. Um, so I think there is a bit of that that's embedded in me as well. But after the two years, it wasn't Morocco. It wasn't about money. It was more about getting more education. Mm-hmm. And then fast forwarding to that uh, third year when I was quitting the UAE, um, I got tired of seeing the professional developments being hosted by folks that I felt I was more competent than. And there's a certain prestige, too, when you're and, and this is some of the conversations that have been having, happening in the uh, international school leadership spaces where we're talking about who are the who are the leaders showing up and where is the diversity in the leadership in international schools. So I got tired of seeing the same, you know, white, American, blue eyed, blonde hair girl in front of us te- teaching us about instruction and what we're supposed to do in the school and school policy and stuff. And I'm like, well, I can do that. And not that I hadn't been tapped on, but it was like, no, I don't need to be tapped on. Let me go get my stuff together. So, yeah, I just I enjoy school. I enjoy education. I enjoy asking questions. I didn't know my study, though, when I decided to apply. I had just heard about intercultural competence and all that stuff, but it fit right in. So that's I'm like, it's it's the universe. It's the universe conspiring for all of this as well. So at what point did you realize that this was the topic you wanted to take on? When I got, as soon as I got into the PhD program, oh, I have to share this amazing story with you. So um, at the University of Minnesota, when anytime someone is selected, they have these uh, preview days and they'll invite all of the selected students to come in and just, there was a Chautauqua conference going on. So I got to do that. Um, They set up some tours and stuff of the campus. So we got to do that. So I decided to bring my mother and my grandmother with me. So maybe this is also connected to being single as well, because my my stones, right, my my strength is still my mother and my grandmother. So when I was invited to go to this preview day, uh, grandma and my mom came and we're at this conference, the Chautauqua. So everybody is standing up in the room to introduce themselves and we're just going person by person by person. So when it comes to me, I stand up, you know, hi, everybody. I'm Tiffany Lachelle Smith. I'm from Alton, Illinois. I was accepted into this program and I'm looking forward to being here. I sit down. My mother stands up. Hi, everybody. I'm Rhonda Brown. I'm Tiffany's mother. I'm here to support her. My mom sits down. Then my grandmother stand up. Hey, everybody. I'm Tiffany Smith's grandmother, Dorothy Howell. The whole room went into applause. 
I mean, the entire room. And I still don't understand, like, what they received from that. But I was very present in that space. So after we left that space, Nate, the funding came in. Like, yeah, we'll pay for you to be here. <laughs> Come on up. So, yeah, it was it was beautiful. It was definitely a connection. Yeah. So your podcast that you host is called Abroad in Education. Absolutely. And you talk to EdPats, particularly black teachers who have gone out of the U.S. and are working overseas. Your doctoral research is about black teachers who have left the U.S. and gone to UAE. I'm wondering, did the doctoral research create the podcast or did the podcast create the research or is this a symbiotic relationship? Great question. And that's where I was going with the story. So when I got into the PhD program, I started talking to my professors about my experience. And it was, yes, I've been teaching abroad. I've been to these countries. I've traveled, all of this stuff. And I, and I didn't quite have a, a way of framing it into a study, even research questions. So when I'm talking to professors about it, in their mind, their first question was, oh, were you in the military? No, I wasn't in the military. Oh, were you in the Peace Corps? No, I wasn't in the Peace Corps. So even being able to situate like international, the international school market, I'll say, there was no space for it in academia. Like a lot of people are just not talking about it for some reason. So as I'm going through these conversations about um, my story and, you know, how can I conceptualize this research study, I took a course called Intercultural Communications with Dr. Barbara, Barbara uh, Kapler. And at the end of the course, we had to create some type of project. <laughs> and the podcast mm. actually came out of that. So it was really about, and this it was critical too, because it was like, stop, <laughs> let me not tell you the story of other people. Let me let, let you listen to their own stories. So the platform, as far as abroad and education, was to really hand the mic to folks who were out there doing it. And I'm thinking about questions as far as like how to engage in an interview. And it just kept going. <laughs> yeah. What have you learned from folks in doing this podcast and talking and hearing these stories? So this is what I'm working on on one of the chapters. So this is an amazing question. And if you have any suggestions, I'm open. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm thinking about the podcast as not only a space to be able to talk through what I'm thinking about this research, but also a communal space to hear other people's perspectives of it. So mm -hmm. like, for example, I interviewed Dr. Karen Flynn, who's a professor at the University of Illinois, and her work is on uh, migration and mobility through black subjects. And we were talking about like um, pop culture and how black, black folks are looking at themselves as expatriates. And I said, yeah, but that's a loaded word, right? Let's talk mm -hmm. about expat versus immigrant versus, you know, all of these different politicized ways of, of mobility. And her and I just going back and forth, back and forth in this grapple session. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what it is. And I can write about that. You, Nate, the interview that I did with you, you are a chapter in my dissertation. And I'm talking about kid tragedies through you. I'm talking about, you know, I don't have anything else to prove. I can make my own autonomous decisions about the life that I want to live now. And I'm like unpacking that, right? Analyzing it. What does that mean? And what does it mean specifically for Black people? So it really has, in the academic word, it's turned into this triangulation resource where I can say, this is what the life historians are saying. This is what folks are saying on the podcast. 
And this is how I'm connecting it to my life story. And it's like this, this <laughs> connection. Of, we're all saying the same thing in different spaces. And how do you make sense of it? So it's not. And that's the thing I have to be mindful of. It is a form of entertainment. It is a form of sharing narrative. Like Bell Hook says, you know, we have to engage in, in different modalities. Like I can't talk academically on the podcast. I'm just storytell and let the stories go. But it's huge. Like what we're doing is is critical. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not waiting on permission. I'm going to make the path and just leave the trail. <laughs> so yeah. you've talked to all these teachers. I'm, I'm just wondering, what are some of the common things? Well, actually, no, 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 no. Let's go to this instead. Okay. Um, the folks who have left. So well, actually, let's back up. That chapter, I, I'd like to read that chapter, by the way, just for the record. Just <laughs> send it my way after this. Um, what are some of the reasons folks are saying that they left the states? I'm telling anybody who listens to this episode right now, if you all write this, you better cite me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Nate. Okay. So the biggest thing, and this is my conceptualizing it, right? And this is good for me to say it out loud because like I said, I'm still trying to put it into words. In my mind, especially when we talk about teacher attrition and, and okay, so starting from the beginning, there's teacher turnover in general. So you have teacher migration when teachers migrate from one school to another, and you have teacher attrition when teachers leave the system altogether. And whether it's temporarily or permanently, they leave. So when you look at these studies that talk about teacher attrition, you have a lot of researchers who have gone in, you know, with this quantitative survey data or even, um, what is it, the statistics, uh, National Center for Education Statistics or something like that, all of that data, they analyze the data. They don't talk to people. It's just an analysis of the data. So they say when teachers decide to leave, it is this, you know, lack of involvement in school district policies, lack of autonomy in the classroom, lack of administrative support, like these very surface ways of thinking about why someone would leave. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, yes, those are real. Those factors are absolutely real. But what about the teachers who are not leaving the system? What about the teachers who are leaving the country, remaining in teaching and going to teach somewhere else? Right. Because my, my that there's something significant about I still want to be a teacher, but I don't want to teach for you. So when I'm looking at these stories, um, specifically through this lens of intersectionality, you know, what are the implications of race, gender, class, nationality, right? A space where nationality actually matters, relationship status, uh, this network piece, you know, you know, there's Q's, there's AKs, there's Deltas in the UAE, they're chartering chapters out there, right? So it's, it's a little bit of like the complexity of the identity, not just one surface. Mm -hmm. So I've defined it as they are leaving for either, well, I'm sorry, as an expression of discontent or as an expression of audacity. And I've separated these two themes by kind of looking at the ways that folks talk about their stories. So one in particular, uh, his self-selected pseudonym, Dick Richardson, um, he's talking about... <laughs> Sorry, Dick Richardson. <laughs> where, look, where did that come from, Nate? Because I was like, I bet you, and I'm, and I'm, I'm publishing it. So <laughs> that was the name. <laughs> Did it come from a movie or something? I, I'll explain later. Just keep going. 
Okay, we're gonna cut that part. <laughs> we're leaving that in. We're leaving that in. We're leaving that in. We're leaving that in. <laughs> anyway, okay. So he he chose it. He did choose it. So he talks about um, working at working in um, New Orleans. And he's born and raised in New Orleans, and he's actually a third-generation educator in his family. So his parent, both parents and his grandmother uh, were educators. So he's talking about his experience um, post-Katrina and how mm. when he entered into the education system uh, post-Katrina, all the charter schools came in. So the result of these charter schools coming in was that both of his parents lost their jobs. They were dismissed from the profession. They had gotten to a certain age and they were not invited to come back. So that's that parental dismissal, right? Um, his, his parents were being replaced. Um, another thing is this kid tragedies. And that's what I'm connecting to your story as far as, you know, when you said you went to the White House and you had uh, taken the obituary in your pocket and you gave the, the eulogy. I said there's not enough conversations being had about students impact on teachers rather than teachers impact on students and same thing with dick richardson he attended he said you know there were probably about six funerals that happened that year and he attended at least three of them of his students passing and these are the things quoting you which is why you're in the research but these are the things that grinds you down and i'm thinking about like a pepper grinder right you go in as this whole teacher and there's these elements that grind you down and it's not about lack of support it's not about you know school district policies it's about the person my spirit is grinded down so that's that and then the um, audacity is more about early encounters with study abroad, which was my experience, um, parental uh, travel and leisure and all that stuff in the ways that our minds, we have this psychological freedom in other spaces. So I got to put all that into words. It's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. You talk about grinding down. John King, who's now running for governor of Maryland, good luck, uh, talks about the double taxation that black teachers receive in schools. So, like, there's the expectation that you, uh, first off, like, be that person for the, for the kids. And, like, you should be that person. Like, we want that person. But you're, you're always asked to be that person. And, like, a lot of what you said resonates with me. Like, I had academic cream at Lincoln High School. I love my principal. Like, I still mess with Pat. Like, Pat is my guy. I ride or die for Pat. Uh, a lot of folks in Tacoma schools uh, who are teachers are upset with our leadership. Uh, I think Carla led the district through a pretty uh, rough time. Like I had the ideal situation uh, to be a teacher. I felt respect in the community. I just had to do something different and I had to bounce, right? And so, okay, so you talked about why folks leave. Here's the part that I'm curious about and we haven't really parlayed on is that how has the United Arab Emirates become the place of destination for, for black educators? Like what's the, so like in geography, we talk about push factors and pull factors. Mm -hmm. Like there are more black educators working at my school ACS than we're working at my school, Lincoln High School in Tacoma, even though the black population in Tacoma is far larger than the black population in UAE or in Abu Dhabi in particular. And so how has this become the Mecca for black educators and like what's going on? All right, well, we're going to have this conversation because you know I don't have the answer, but <laughs> <laughs> I do have two theories. I have two theories, actually. One, you already mentioned it. It has a lot to do with social media. And when people mm. are putting their highlight reels on social media, Bell Hooks calls it decolonizing the imagination. Now you have pictures to be able to, you know, go with that. Oh, I can go and teach abroad and it's safe over here. Right. Come on, y'all. Here's the. <laughs> 
<laughs> the lights come yeah, 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 yeah. over here. And I think a lot of people, especially what's going on politically in the States, a lot of folks are willing to take that risk to just go and see, right? You can always come home just to go and see. And I think the thing about going to see is people like it. Yeah. They like it a lot. Girl, I caught myself waving hello at a cop a couple days ago, and I was like, what in the fresh hell? <laughs> anyway, I interrupted. Keep going. <laughs> and then the other part, which, Nate, if we're going to be honest and serious about what we're doing, we have to be honest and serious about it. And the politics of, I'll say just capitalism, right? We are agreeing to be part of a system that is selling education to the highest bidder. We are agreeing to be part of a system where, although you say, you know, it's not necessary, you can pick your factory schools. We're looking at a factory country who imports labor, right? Everybody who is not Emirati in the country is imported to do a particular labor. And because of how much revenue, I mean, when you look at the statistics from the International School Consultancy International schools are a $6.4 billion industry. I mean, it's all private schools. And of course, this is um, inter internationally, right, globally. Uh, but the UAE is rated second under China for being in possession of the most English medium international schools. So one, you're selling English. Two, you're selling curriculum. And three, you're selling a dream to people who would put their lives on the line for their children to be able to excess attain this education and then potentially change the life history or the family history of their families so it's nasty it's nasty and it's also liberating right for particular people i'll say I so here's the, right. the here's the thing though is is that like I hear you talking about the revenue that international schools generate, and that's straight up true like I have heard the stories about schools and you know kind of around. The flip side of that is, is that like, and maybe this is me coming out of Washington state mm -hmm. and like Washington state teachers, are the best paid teachers in the country, but like I took a pay cut coming here. Right. And so I, I do you know, I, here's, here's who was the person who you talked to in your research who was here like the longest or like the OG, like, like who's the patient zero of like black folks coming to, to the Gulf to teach? Oh goodness. No, you know, the, the, that's what's interesting about my study. So I did a pilot study first, and then I did the actual study. The actual study mm -hmm. out of the 13 life historians, I mean, there was probably one. No, there was one who had, oh, no, two. One had been there for two years, and the other had been to three for there for three. But the rest of them, six, seven, eight, nine years. And that's on, like, they get there, we get there, and we stay. <laughs> <laughs> and so and and this is the other thing that I'm bringing out in the study, not necessarily in the dissertation, but maybe a solo uh, publication, is this teacher migration. So we're not even loyal to one school. You have folks who will do their contract maybe with one school and then they'll migrate to another school and they'll do, you know, one or two years at that school and then they'll migrate to another school. They're not leaving the country. They're just school hopping. Right. So it's like I want to stay in the UAE, but I don't necessarily want to stay at this factory school, like you said. So there's a lot of political stuff that's happening in the UAE. But I, I think it's interesting. I think it's all interesting because at the end of the day, most often, you know, the narratives that we hear, you know, with 42 percent of the population in America having a passport. Right. We hear what do you need to leave America for? Everybody wants to come here. And then you have folks in this one country, like you're saying, I do think it's 
it's it's it's not a phenomenon, but it's it's interesting that the UAE is it's getting the spotlight. And it's like, yeah, we've been told that the Middle East is so dangerous, but we're finding more safety in the Middle East than what we're finding in America. I just think it's interesting. Well, and- and it's funny for me because, like, I didn't realize that I was moving to basically like educational Atlanta until I got here, and like, it's it's like it's it, it's it's something that really fascinates me. But like, I have talked to too many people who, like you said, you you, you named it. Like, it's it's we're literally safer here than we are at home. And safety is safety can be. I guess there's layers of safety as well. I, I do think there's layers of safety um, because even in the UAE, safety is surveillance, right? It's it's actually sold as well. Uh, when do you think that you're going to have your research finished? Well, actually, that's the wrong question because the research never ends. When do you think you're going to have your paper finished? August. <laughs> Pray. Let's All right. Yeah, you got to defend. You got to, right? You got to. Yeah. 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 You know. Nate, it's interesting because, and this is one of the reasons why I appreciate podcasting, and I have to thank you for even inviting me to your space. It's being able to be in conversation with folks about what I already know, and like you're giving me words to be able to just like solidify it. The paper- I'll send you a bill. (laughs) Thank you. Look, the paper's written in my head. I just have to put it on paper, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I'll definitely send you a bill. Pay me in dirhams only. I don't want American dollars. (laughs) <laughs> now you choosing. <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany, I'm really glad you came on the show. Uh, we we have a tradition on here, and I want to offer you the opportunity. We end shows with a thing called, Here, hold this L. Hold this L. And so L. cancel culture is not real. But who is somebody who you think needs to take a seat for a minute? Oh, that's a hard one, Nate. I know. I only ask good questions. I told you. That's a hard one because I'm a nice person. I don't tell nobody to sit down, please. <laughs> Who would that be right now? Oh. We're going to edit out this silence, too, because I don't want to sound like I'm No, we're leaving this all in. All the awkward staying in for sure. <laughs> Do you know I really don't know? Girl, there's nobody in the world right now who you want to shut the hell up. You can't I think of know. nobody you want to tell to shut up. No, you are that pleasant a person. When, when people shut up, I don't have anything else to talk about. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Okay. I'm, I'm giving you the opportunity to be a hater with like all the bullets you want. And you're like, I don't know nobody I want to shut up. Come on now. But I think this is probably far, it's part, <laughs> part of my... Spiritual healing, not being judgmental. <laughs> Lord have mercy. That's the wackest answer we ever have for this. That's all right. That's all right. That's no, all right. Can I can I have like five more seconds? Because <laughs> I don't really want to. I really want to know who I would tell just to shut that. Sit down. You get the whole ill. Sit down, please. Who would it be? Oh, I got one. Oh, but you know what? Okay, girl, cancel them. Go ahead. Wait. Okay. So Biden, as much as we love him, what is this whole thing with uh, menthol cigarettes? And how <laughs> he wants to take it away. He wants to save black people. 
Right? Wait, 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 wait. You're not mad about selling weapons to the Israelis. You're mad about taking away menthol cigarettes. Yeah, well, well, the, the reason why I'm mad is because his reason for taking it away is to save black people. He wants black people, like specifically, unless I'm reading the propaganda. And this was brought to my attention. I'm very mindful about the news and not watching it. So the article that was brought to my attention, it specifically said to basically save black people from killing themselves. And I was like, really, Biden? Like, we we, we, we got you in. Like, really? <laughs> Tiffany, 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 I have never smoked a Newport with a white person. Which are lies. <laughs> And and the and I know Minnesota and Washington are parallel. You have groups of white folks puffing menthol, you know, outside the bar as anybody else. Like, come on now. Where'd this come from? So, yeah, I think I think we might have to agree disagree here because like, you know what? Like, I, so listen, uh, why am I caping for menthol cigarettes? Let me shut up. All right. <laughs> Tiffany, if people want to follow you on the socials, where do they look? Wait, do we want that part right, <laughs> Doug? Do we Doug. <laughs> and it's, what's interesting is the reason I brought it up is because it just came in, came up last weekend. And I was just like, yeah. wait, what? That's not true. That's not true. And then I read you it. You were like that. reading the Atlanta Black Star or something like that. So that's that's how they get you. That's how they get. Was it the Black Star for real? I don't even know. I'm ashamed oh, that I'm even repeating it. Anyway, Tiffany, plug, <laughs> yes. plug for your podcast. If yes. folks want to find your show, where do they look? If you are looking for abroad and education, you can find me on IG and Twitter at abroad underscore I N underscore E D. And you can always go to the website abroad Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining me this morning, my evening. Uh, it's good to see you. And hopefully we can parlay in person in the future. Amen. Thank you. I appreciate being invited on your show. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wakanda for every y'all. Wash your damn hands. Wear a mask. Get vaccinated and prosecute the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. I don't know if I like that cigarette part. And you know it's only because I smoke cigarettes. <laughs> That's why I was pissed. And I, and I smoke menthol. That's why I was pissed. Like, hold on now. You talking to me, Biden? Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.